Good evening, once again. I'd like to acknowledge at this point that I feel uh, quite honored and um, appreciative, grateful for um, the opportunity to sit uh, with you and visit with you tonight. Um, this, uh, there's a wonderful spirit tonight here at Spirit Rock. This is no exception tonight. Uh, and together with our uh, good-hearted practice, uh, recreate a uh, a kind of uh, sacred space where we can uh, study uh, and experience and learn uh, things that we can't um, often do on our own. And a lot of the time we don't find ourselves in sacred space. Our world these days is rather, you know, oriented to the secular. It's only getting worse. <clears throat> Jerry Mander wrote a book, uh, In the Absence of the Sacred. I think it's been about 30 years now since he wrote that. So. <clears throat> In the secular world, you know, everything is bottom line. What have you done for me lately? Where, what have I gotten? You know, uh, it's also what um, Wendell Berry, in his book, The Unsettling of America, he said, uh, in America we've been preoccupied with the mind of exploitation. So, you know, this meditation you're doing, what do you get out of it? <laughs> and uh, is it worth what you're putting into it? Getting a good return on your investment of, of time and effort and energy? You have something to show for it? So, uh, and uh, Wendell Berry uh, contrasts the mind of exploitation with the mind of nurturing or tending. So this is the mind where you instead of uh, seeing what you can exploit, and then you don't... It's not about relationships or the environment. You get what you can and then move on. You extract, you know, get what you can out of the situation and move on to the next place. So you leave behind. You leave the mess behind. Move on. And um, uh, the mind of nurturing or tending is more the mind of you set up a home for yourself. You set up, uh, you know, this is like ground and you have a, you make yourself at home and then you can uh, grow things. You can grow a garden and you can raise children 
uh, and you know you belong there, and you you take care of things so that everyone can flourish. And it's this mind of how does how do we do this so that everyone can flourish? Uh, and unfortunately, you know, in, in many places, whether it's um, you know, medicine or housing, are we seem to have created a culture, a society where, over the years, uh, it's more about how people make uh, a profit than it is actually about providing medical care, providing housing, uh, so and provide or providing uh, work. Uh, so uh, this is an important kind of shift. And uh, when we come to meditation, we're shifting from this secular orientation, bottom line, exploitation. We're shifting to nurturing, sacred ground, sacred space, nurturing, tending, deep roots, connection. Uh, and then, you know, with uh, your breath, you can be not just counting your breaths, but tending, caring for, having a kind feeling. My teacher, again, Suzuki Roshi said, you can have the feeling for your breath like a mother for her baby. Many of you have had this experience. My my daughter had a baby two years ago now, uh, and uh, sometime in that first week, we talked on the phone, and she said, Dad, I can't believe, I never would have known you could ever love anybody this much. <laughs> oh, you mean like we loved you? <laughs> But when you know that feeling, then you can, you know, it's not just that kind of feeling isn't something that you just happen to luck into. You have a baby, but you can, we, in terms of practice, you know, we cultivate this. We're cultivating how to have a caring relationship, a caring, warm-hearted, loving relationship with our body, our breath, our, our friends, our neighbors, our family, the earth. How do we do that? And obviously at this point it's a huge challenge and I don't have the answers, except I go on sitting. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, tell you tonight, um, I figure it's been over a year now, so I can tell you whatever, and it's a new audience, it's, or you, you will have forgotten what I said before, so. Um, 
But a while back, I came across a, um, an article about a man in England who, Richard Wiseman, great last name, huh? <laughs> a Richard Wiseman who did a study about uh, luck. And he was wondering, uh, is luck something you just happen to be lucky or unlucky? Or is it a behavior? Could you practice being lucky? <laughs> and um, could you practice being unlucky? Or there, were there practices that you could do that would make you more lucky? So this is what he was interested in. And of course, this is science now. He, um, so he advertised, um, and he got about uh, between four and 500 people, I think, who were self-assessed. Self By their own self-assessment, they were lucky or unlucky. <laughs> One of the lucky women uh, was um, 38 or 39, and she said, Oh, you know, I just have the best job in the world. I'm married to the man of my dreams. I have two beautiful children. I'm really happy. In contrast, one of the unlucky uh, women had failed her driving test for the third time, <laughs> stepped in a pothole and twisted her ankle, and fallen down the steps just in the last week. <laughs> So, what's going on here? You know? So, one of the one of the uh, and so then he tested people. What was going on with these people? Um, and one of the things he did was to give uh, people a newspaper, and he would ask the people, "I'd like you to count the number of photographs in this newspaper." So um, the unlucky people took between two and a half and three minutes, and they reported the number of photographs in the newspaper. The lucky people glanced at the paper, and in less than half a minute said, there's 43 photographs in the newspaper. Well, it turned out on page two, in oversized type, taking up over half the page, it said, stop counting and tell the experimenter, there's 43 photographs <laughs> in this newspaper. <laughs> so think about it. <laughs> Are you lucky or not lucky? Sometimes I, I worry, you know, that people who practice meditation are actually making themselves unlucky. I'm just going to follow my breath. I'm just going to follow my breath. No matter what, I'm just going to follow my breath. Isn't that like counting photographs in the newspaper? <laughs> so is the point to follow your breath, or is it to notice things that are actually quite apparent and obvious? but we often don't notice, we're busy doing something else. We have, in other words, you know, an agenda, a recipe, 
to exploit the situation. <laughs> to make it come out the way it's supposed to. So uh, recipes, um, you know, so we get uh, pictures of how things, we want things to be, and then we see if we can get reality to match our picture. And then uh, when reality doesn't match our picture, we either say, I guess I'm not good at following recipes. <laughs> or we say, that was a crummy recipe. <laughs> that was a bad recipe. No wonder I couldn't get it to come out. Uh, so when I, um, uh, many of you know, I've written cookbook, cookbooks, and um, at times um, I've actually worked as a cook, not very often. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> um, it, cooking for love, fine, okay, you know, but... Cooking for a living? Oh, my goodness. So I decided to teach cooking classes um, rather than cooking day in and day out. It gets really tiresome and exhausting. But anyway, um, this, what I want to tell you about is if you, um, many people, most of us, um, you know, we think, if I'm going to cook something, don't I want it to come out the way it should? Shouldn't I have it come? I want it to come out. So... Um, you get a recipe. And if you, if you look, start looking through the book and then, do I have the ingredients? Do I not have the ingredients? What would be a good recipe? And then, oh, here's a great recipe. And then I have to go out and get the ingredients. And then I go shopping and then I can't get all, maybe I still can't get the ingredients and I have to go to a different store. And then, um, by that point, Maybe I don't have time to, follow, to do that recipe. But I try to do it anyway and get stressed because I want to do a really good recipe. And I, this, this is a really good one. So, um, and, and sometimes it works. When it doesn't work, you know, then you can be like, you know, we say, well, I followed the directions. You've heard this before, right? <laughs> I was just following orders. <laughs> I go along with the... I, I, I'm, I just do what I'm given instructions for. So, in contrast to this, um, I, I discovered fairly early on because my early cooking experience was at the Zen Center at Tassajara. It's a 14-mile dirt road up 3,000 feet, down 3,000 feet. It's about an hour and a half or two hours to the nearest store. You do not go out to get any ingredients you're missing. You figure out something else to do. So I realized um, it was much more important for me to look and see what the ingredients were 
uh, whether it's from the garden or the refrigerator, what do you have on hand? And then, and how much time do you have? How much energy do you have? And then dream up what to do with those ingredients. The ingredients, the food, the ingredients that are your energy, vitality, time. Taking all that into consideration, dream up what to do with it. And this is called being a cook, <laughs> which is different than being a recipe follower. So if you're a cook, you can be lucky. If you're a recipe follower, follower <laughs> you're not going to be lucky. And you won't find things. So a lot of my creativity in cooking is because I'm using the ingredients that are there. Which otherwise, if I looked in the book, it would not say to put those together. Now, I don't just put anything together like, oh, I could put that together. But because the other part about this is, what about experiencing closely what's going on so you know what's what? When you experience things closely, you know what they are and how to, what you might do with them. And pretty soon, in a certain sense, as you know things closely enough, they start explaining to you what to do. But if you taste something carefully, and I'm using this as a metaphor. When you taste something carefully, uh, you can taste what we call the true spirit of the food, of the ingredient. The true spirit of the ingredient is different than how you think it should taste or how it's supposed to come out in the recipe you're following. So you can actually experience things directly and then know what's what. And this is not just about tasting ingredients, but tasting the moment. And then because you taste things carefully, at least in my experience, I taste things carefully, and then uh, I can put those tastes together, and do they go or not? It's not intuition. It's just experiencing things closely and carefully, welcoming the experience. And getting to know th things as they are um, before you start trying to season them. When we first started uh, cooking at, at Tassajara in the 67, and we, for with the breakfast cereal, we were serving milk and cream and white sugar and brown sugar and honey, molasses. 
Shouldn't you be able... This is before people became fat phobic <laughs> and dairy intolerant, etc. <laughs> Some people, though, wanted canned milk. <laughs> but I like it, they said. So shouldn't... so. After a few days of this and trying to pass these condiments down the row in the meditation hall, Suzuki Roshi called us together and he said, I don't understand you Americans. When you put so much milk and sugar on your cereal, how will you taste the true spirit of the grain? It had never occurred to me that there was such a thing. Oh, you could actually experience something closely and carefully so you knew it. And then he said, what, did you think that any moment you have you can put milk and sugar on it so it tastes the way you want it to? Probably not. Probably not. So this capacity uh, which we're studying in meditation, to know your breath, to know your body, to know the sensations, to know your thoughts, to know your feelings, and experience things closely and carefully, and then you can start dreaming up what to do with your ingredients. And, you know, we're, we all are in the midst of our own sacred dream. Uh, but this dreaming up what to do uh, with the ingredients is very similar to this being lucky. Picasso, too, said something like this, you know. I don't look for things, he said, I find them. So, finding something is different than looking. What are you looking for? So, at the beginning of the evening tonight, I gave you some poems. Or one poem at the beginning, one at the end of meditation. The one poem ends, the, you know, the night, the full moon, night advances, the full moon sinks and falls into the ocean uh, in that poem. The black dragon jewel you've been searching for is everywhere. Uh, something precious. Uh, something precious you've longed for. It's here. It's everywhere. Uh, this is similar to, um, there was a man years ago who lived at Green Gulch, Harry Roberts, who was half, I think he was half Irish and half Yurok Indian, and he'd studied um, with an, one of the elders in that tribe. If you came to him uh, and you said, I'd like to study with you, and he would say, 
uh, bring me a flower. And if you moved, you couldn't be a student. You had to find the flower on the spot. You, you, you had to find it on the spot. Um, and this is the difference between following a recipe and cooking. You know, being unlucky, like, where is it looking around and looking and finding? <clears throat> so this is important kind of, we forget because we think, oh, I need to become more concentrated. I need to, um, you know, uh, calm my anxiety. I need to clear this up and calm that down and boost this up. And <laughs> I have this whole plan. And eventually, I'll get there. What about now, being, being there, here, now? And the other uh, poem I told you has, of course, very similar feeling. I can't tell if the day is ending or the world, or if the secret of secrets is inside me again. Which is it? So a lot of this, I mean, a part of this then has to do with, you know, where do we put our attention? And again, we're living in a culture um, that says, if you pay us money, we will grab your attention for you and give it something to do. <laughs> and we're good at grabbing your attention and getting you to pay us money for taking your attention away from you. That's what we do. Uh, and, of course, we don't know what effect this has had, but gerrymander, you know, when he wrote, in the absence of the sacred, he also wrote four arguments against television because it's grabbing attention. And especially growing up, children growing up, now it's television and the video games, and it's, it's I learned to have my attention grabbed. That's what I've grown up learning, and that's what I'm, that's about all I'm good at doing. And then somebody can grab my attention, suppose, you know, maybe for business. If you're lucky, then you can find work to do that grabs your attention in the same way you grew up. I was just in uh, Great Britain recently, and I, I met the man who created Moshi Monsters. 60 million kids have joined Moshe Monsters. 
None of yours? You can adopt a monster on the internet and there's a virtual place where they all live and you can have your, you have your little place for your monster to hang out and then you can, you can earn tokens and buy things and it's a whole, it's a site. So it turns out that's what he loved to do when he was growing up and now he gets to do it and, he's, and he managed to come up with something. <laughs> and uh, uh, with the kids, they just love it. It's Mr. Moshi Monster. And he is signing pieces of paper and drawing little pictures. And, but... Um, you know, the way that so many games and television works is it keeps people, especially younger, but any of us who are get absorbed in that, it keeps you absorbed by having something threatening happen. And then you are grabbed by, oh no, what's going to happen now? And then... That happened. Oh, and then the next one, and the next one. So, you're constantly in this what's survival mode. Survival mode is associated with the mode of exploitation. What do you know? And then, it's you know it's also what's of course known as the reptilian brain. Reptiles eat their babies sometimes. They're not warm-blooded. We have this reptilian brain at the top of the brain stem, you know, so so we can um, in in and there are occasionally situations where a reptilian brain is called for, but most of the time it's not. <laughs> and especially in terms of meditation, we're learning how to shift out of the survival mode into connection into a warm-hearted a meeting, meeting things, dreaming of what to do with our life, in our lives. And there's no recipe for it. Nobody knows how to do you better than you. Who would you listen to who's going to tell you how to do you? You're the one to dream up what to do with you. And maybe you get, you know, maybe you have a, some practice to do that helps you do that. If the practice is taking you away from dreaming up what to do with you or sucking you in, what about you? What will you do? So um, some of you must have seen, you know, I think it was, a, what was it, a month or two ago, uh, this thing started coming out about boredom, how great boredom is, and how actually when you're bored, way more is going on in your consciousness beneath the surface than anybody possibly suspected, <laughs> and even more than when you're engaged in something. Or <laughs> that actually, um, and this is very similar to how Suzuki Roshi described meditation in one of his talks, he said, the talk is about Zen and going to the restroom. 
So if you eat food, you understand, well, at some point I'll go to the restroom. But, you, uh, but then you think, oh, I'll just keep taking in life experiences. I won't need to go to the restroom. That's called meditation. <laughs> you get to the restroom. And, um, and then you can be processing. It's more like digesting, processing, digesting, and letting go of experience. And, and in that way, refreshing yourself so that as you receive experience, it's not um, jarring. You know, if we, when we haven't so much processed uh, over, and that may be over time, our experience, then we have um, often reptilian reactions. Something happens and it triggers our emotional mind, you know. And then, again, in meditation we're learning to restrain or stop and then refocus, give our attention back to body, roots, breath, And uh, quite possibly finding what is precious, that what is precious is everywhere, it's right here. This is the, um, what of course Buddhism teaches is that precious is not in the object, precious is in your heart. So when your heart connects with something, you feel precious. But we've been at this for all these years and we started to think like, well, I'm not going to just give my heart to any old thing. <laughs> but find something precious, to find something precious in the moment to give it to. And that's pretty important. Okay, um, I think I'll tell you one more poem and then uh, we have it looks like a few minutes if we'd like to visit, see if you have something to comment or ask about. Um, <clears throat> the, my, I'll t I'm going to tell you my favorite food poem. <laughs> it's uh, a sonnet, uh, one of the sonnets to Orpheus by Rainer Maria Rilke. And this is 
partly Stephen Mitchell's translation, and then at one point um, I worked with a friend of mine who's German to translate it. <clears throat> Round apple, smooth banana, melon, gooseberry, peach, how all this affluent speaks death and life in the mouth. Forgot that, didn't you? We're just going to have some good food. <laughs> we just want the good stuff, not the... We say in Zen, um, you should have a, you have a mouth like a furnace. So you take it all in and chew it up and digest it. So the, um, and then it says, like, and then a mind like a fan in winter. Pretty useless, right? You know? <laughs> you're, not, you're not turning it on in the winter, so mind like a fan in winter. Excuse me, I'm getting distracted from the poem. Round apple, smooth banana, melon, gooseberry, peach, how all this affluence speaks death and life in the mouth. I sense, observe it in a child's transparent features while he tastes. This comes from far away. Instead of words, discoveries are flowing out of the flesh of the fruit, astonished to be free. Dare to say what apple truly is, this sweetness that feels thick, dark, dense at first, then exquisitely lifted in your taste grows clarified, awake, luminous, double-meaninged, sunny, earthy, real. Oh, knowledge, pleasure, joy, immense. Okay, do you understand that's somebody who gave themself, himself to tasting? the moment, to tasting what is precious, what is implicit in each moment when you give yourself to the moment fully, the moment becomes more vivid. My foot is cramping, excuse me. I have to move it. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, any comments, questions? And Sean says there's a microphone and you get to speak out. Anybody? This is not really a question, it's more of like a request after that wonderful Rilke poem in your talk about explorations into food and discovery and cooking and not looking at the recipe. I wonder if you could share a story in one of those times where you're looking in the kitchen and putting together groups of foods and tastes <laughs> and, and share a type of a revelation of a new grouping of foods and tastes. 
I, I have to open up, but I don't have the refrigerator here. <laughs> well, it's uh, often as simple as, um, you know, there's, there's such a thing like pesto. So, pesto is basil, olive oil, lemon. It can have walnuts. It can have Parmesan cheese. Um, but um, then there's uh, not just lemon, but there's limes. And there's not just uh, basil, but there's cilantro. There's tarragon. There's parsley. There's anise seeds. Um, and there's... Um, um, there's other kinds of cheeses. There's other kinds of nuts. There's hazelnuts. Um, so you could have uh, pumpkins, lime pumpkin seed pesto with cilantro. So it's it's sort of useful to have. For me, it's sort of useful to have a kind of structure. But then uh, I also think about these things in terms of uh, flavors. So when I've studied uh, flavors, I, I actually learned this first with wine tasting. Um, it always seemed that wine tasting was fairly complicated. Um, but I st studied wine tasting with, when I was the, at Green's restaurant, I worked at the Zen Center's restaurant, Green's in San Francisco for a number of years, and we would have wine tastings once a month or once every two months and we had um, you know people who ran restaurants Alice Waters and um, Patty Unterman various people um, and then we talk about wine so I had to make up my own names language for things because I didn't have the language It turns out that language um, actually at times can help us penetrate something. If you don't have language, then it's hard to notice. I'll come back to the wine in a minute, but for instance, tea tasters, apparently almost anybody can become a tea taster and they have, they, you, you, if you undergo the training, they will have like 20 cups of tea on the table. They're all different except they share one characteristic you taste them all, and then, you, and then that one characteristic is either what... That's what we mean when we say bright, or when we say brisk, or when we say oaky or chesty or nutty. That's, that's it. Here's, it has all these different flavors, but this one is the same for all of them. So if you get that sort of experience, then you start to have vocabulary, and then because you have the vocabulary, then you have something to say about what you're tasting. So I came up in tasting with uh, th three categories for me, earth, earthy flavors, lentils, nuts, beets. Beets, for some people, they're so earthy. <laughs> it's like dirt. It's like eating dirt. <laughs> so, and people have their preferences, you know. I happen to like earth flavors, but some people, ew, it's too too much like dirt. And then there's the stem leaf flavors, asparagus and all the 
you know, vegetable flavors, lettuces, spinaches, uh, celery. And then there's the flowery, fruity flavors, which are the fruits and then, and then like flowery. And that's also the category where things are, it's a higher vibration. So things sparkle. Uh, so if you put like, uh, classically, like lemon will go with pretty much anything. And that's because most things don't have and then you put that with things and then and then it's like brighter. Lemon chicken. You know? It's all over the place. So um so people have figured these things out. Um and so um that's another thing I do sometimes is, um, do I have some earth flavors? Do I have some stem leaf flavors? Do I have some flowery something? And can I, and then is it going to work with, so um, uh, another example of this is, um, well, it comes up and think, you know, chocolate chip cookies or chocolate even. Chocolate is, dark chocolate is earthy. And dark chocolate now has finally become popular. Um, but because for years it's like a milk chocolate because dark chocolate is too bitter. So this is, um, people are, you know, we're now appreciating the, the dark chocolate, the essence of dark chocolate. If it was a week from now, I could tell you next Saturday, I'm, I have invited someone to my house you can probably Google him, Mark Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R, but he's, he's now doing Coco Soirees. <laughs> and they're free. But you might want to buy, because, and he has spent two years, you know, traveling around the world, and he has, he has wanted to free Coco from behind bars. <laughs> So we are going to be whisking the cocoa and drinking it and then trying it with different flavors. But you can tell, you know, it's pretty classic like cocoa, uh, chocolate, and then raspberry. It's so earthy and then you have something bright. Or chocolate and orange. So things have their own vibration, and you study the vibrations and see which vibrations are going to go together. Yes? What's your most spectacular clock, and what were the ingredients? Oh, yes. Well, probably my most spectacular flop was I was making a birthday cake for my dad. I was at a friend's house. Uh, there was, um, and I was, uh, you um, cream the butter and then add the sugar. And I found a jar uh, that, um, uh, that was white and it had a vanilla bean in it. And I tasted it and it was sweet. And then by the time uh, it was in with the sugar and the eggs, it was salty. And I went back to the jar. 
and discovered that it was somewhere underneath that sugar was salt. And then uh, the further mistake was, you know, at some point there's this adage, you know, you have to know when to walk away. (laughs) 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 To cut your losses. But I blithely went on thinking like that if I had more ingredients, it'll be okay. (laughs) It was never okay. Maybe enough sugar would have helped. Sugar sweet sweet tends to soften all the other flavors. So, um, but anyway, that was terrible. <laughs> but the the one. Um, but also, uh, you never quite know what is going to go wrong. But um, uh, back when I was cooking at Tassahara, I was trying to make baked potatoes. And um, because uh, in those days, there was this strong um, macrobiotic movement. We should all be eating brown rice and chewing it, whatever. (laughs) You know, Suzuki Roshi was not, um, I mean, he was trying to join us in what we were doing, but he one point said, "I I, I don't like food trips, I like work trips. Uh, And, you know, there's a famous story about him. Uh, One day he went into town with a student who was very devoted at the time to being vegetarian. Later went off to study with Trungpa Rinpoche and started eating a lot of meat and drinking a lot of booze. But But at the time he was um, quite a strict vegetarian. And then he was on a trip from Tassara, this two hours into Carmel, and then they did some shopping, and Suzuki Roshi said, why don't we get some lunch? And the student was a little worried, where should we eat? And, and Roshi said, how about that cafe? And it was, just a, it was a burger place. And, and the student finally found on the menu a grilled cheese sandwich. And uh, Suzuki Roshi ordered a hamburger double meat. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, and then when the food came, they each took a bite. And then Suzuki Roshi said, how's your sandwich? And the student said, it's good, I like it. And Roshi said, I don't like mine, let's switch. And he grabbed the boots. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a Zen teacher, you can get away with this sort of stuff, I guess. I don't know. Um, but anyway... Um, a lot of we were eating a lot of rice, both white rice and brown rice. So one time I tried baking potatoes. And what you need to know is that in our tradition, when the bell rings, the food is served. I I was at another kind of a meditation center once, and their their tradition is when the food is ready, the bell is rung. <laughs> so in our tradition, the cook handles all the stress because everybody else knows when the bell rings, the food will be served. So that one person, <laughs> I, better, I better make sure it's ready. In the other tradition, everybody stresses. Where's the food? Well, what are you worried about? When, the, when it's ready, they'll hit the bell. So I was trying to make baked potatoes, and they never got cooked in time. Um, and we served them anyway. So that... <laughs> 
So that was a big, uh, a big. What did you call it? I used to call these fiascos. <laughs> fiascos. That was my biggest fiasco. And um, I watched Suzuki Roshi, and then you, you know, we, all we had to eat it with was a spoon and chopsticks. <laughs> we didn't have a knife or a fork. And um, <laughs> so I watched uh, Roshi, and he. He picked up his spoon first, and it kind of, it didn't go into the potato, it just bounced. But he'd done a lot of rock work over the years. <laughs> so he took his, he took his chopstick, and then he put it on the potato, and he went, bap, 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 and then pulled it out, made another hole, bap, bap, bap three or four holes, and then he managed to chisel off a piece of potato. <laughs> so he went ahead and ate his potato. Not everybody did, but, but that was probably my most, I mean, that was the most people biggest disaster. The, the other one with the salt cake, I mean, oh, it's, it's horrible, it's horrible. My poor father. Oh well. Um, are we getting towards the end? <laughs> is, is this over yet? <laughs> Something else? You know, people are leaving by the droves. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'll beat the traffic. I don't know. Thank you very much for coming, Ed. Oh, yes. You're welcome. Where right right he? here. Where is he? Oh, he's right there. <laughs> um, I could, I'll, I'll give you one more poem. Uh, you know, another of my favorite poets is William Stafford. Uh, he's quite a... Um, you know, he grew up in, in uh, I think it was Mennonite, and he grew up in Kansas, and he became a conscientious objector in World War II. There weren't very many of them. And while he was in um, the conscientious objector camps, he started uh, writing poetry. Later on, you know, the famous story about him is that he had a practice of writing a poem every day. And um, one day a woman came and she said, you know, Robert Bly tells me that you have a practice of writing a poem every day. And he says, yes, I do. I, I get up in the morning, I start on the poem, and then I have a little shelf where I keep it, and I have to then get the kids up and get breakfast for them and get them off to school and things to do during the day. And if I don't get to it sooner, I, I stay up at night and finish it. And so then the interviewer said, well, Mr. Stafford, how do you, how do you, how can you do that day in and day out? How can you have that kind of inspiration or creativity day after day? And he said, I lower my standards. <laughs> but that's another example, isn't it? Of I find something. I find it. Whatever it is, you know. So um, uh, this is one of his uh, probably one-day poems. <laughs> and it's called uh, Yes. 
It could happen any time. Earthquake, tornado, Armageddon. It could happen. Or sunshine, love, salvation. It could, you know. That's why we get up and look out. There are no guarantees in this life, but there are some bonuses. Like morning, like noon, like evening, like right now. Okay. Um, at the end of the evening here, I'd like to chant, um, if you, those of you who would like to join in, we'll chant the syllable Ho, which is for Dharma, but it's also when Santa Claus repeats it three times. Uh, and there's other uses. Oh, and then Ho, I think in some Indian language here, in, you know, uh, it means peace. And then, um, and then there's a derogatory use of the word. In, um, you know, so uh, this is, I consider this a word where it, uh, everything is included. <laughs> but also, um, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, traditional or, or uh, one of the things we do in, in, as Buddhists, you know, we like to turn over the merit, share the merit and blessing of our practice with all beings. So I'd like to invite, us, invite you to do this by the chanting of Ho. We'll send our prayers and blessings out to all beings and the merit and blessings of the evening. So while we're chanting, you're welcome, of course, to bring particular people in mind, or you can just be sending it out. And of course, while we're chanting, it's washing through you, so you're getting this and then sending it on and out. Right? And you're welcome to do this with some vitality. So um, if you're making a beautiful sound, you'll do it up here. Oh. Okay, and then if you do a full-bodied sound. Oh, oh, so I'm going to hit the bell to start, and we'll we'll do this for a minute or so. And if we don't come to a pause, um, I'll hit the bell to end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.